Welcome to Volunteer Plain Talk Podcast, the podcast for today's leaders of volunteers. Your host is me, Meridian Swift. guys, welcome back to the Volunteer Plane Talk podcast. My special guest today is Elisa Kazarin, and Elisa runs the 20 Hats uh, Consulting and Training for High Impact Volunteer Programs blog and website. I was just really thrilled that Elisa agreed to be on the podcast because she's definitely one of the thought leaders in volunteer management out there. She's been encouraging, training, volunteer managers, through leadership circles, through her blog, through participation in presentations at conferences. And it's my pleasure and honor to welcome Elisa. You know, if you've never gone to Elisa's blog, you have to go and subscribe because she's got some amazing and wonderful advice for volunteer managers. So welcome, Elisa. So glad to have you on the podcast. Yes. Hi, Meridian. It's really great to be here. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for the nice words about my blog. I feel the same way about yours. I always look forward to reading your posts. I like to to think you are the heart of our profession. You sort of you really touch into what's what's meaningful in what we do. Oh, well, I appreciate that. But I really do want everyone who listens to go and sign up for your words of wisdom because you really spend a lot of time researching, talking to people in the field and gathering a lot of excellent information. So please, guys, uh, and we'll put in the show notes uh, contacts for Elisa and how you can subscribe to her blog. You and I have known each other for a while, so we're, we're just going to talk about what's going on right now with the pandemic and and you've got a new project going on. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, I have a bunch of projects going on, actually, um, and they're all with museums. Even though my background is with charitable nonprofits doing volunteer management, and way back in the day I was a, a development director before that, um, all of that's to say my background is with sort of the 501c3 nonprofit world. However, over the last uh, three or four years, I've started to work more and more with museums. And right now, all of my all of my projects are with museums, and they really vary. I'm discovering that um, there are lots of ways to help strengthen museum programs and expand them. Um, you know, partly, you know, one of those areas, of course, is training, which, you know, I love. I love to train volunteer managers. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing that. And then um, I'm also writing a handbook for a consortium of museums for their behind the yeah for their behind the scenes staff you know folks who don't normally work with volunteers mm-hmm. um, and therefore really really need the one on one one on one on what it means to work with a volunteer so I'm doing that and then I'm going to be helping another museum with a volunteer engagement strategic plan. Which I'm very happy about because I know that's sometimes a step that uh, is not always addressed in volunteer programs is to do the strategic planning piece. So that's on that's on the horizon, too. And I'm very excited about that. 
That's great. And, th- and that's where the future is going to be, right, in strategic planning. Yeah, well, I hope so. You know, you and I, we both write a lot about how it's important for uh, volunteer leaders, leaders of volunteers, to be strategic in their thinking about their programs, which I know can be challenging because, you know, we are so busy and often so under-resourced. And so oftentimes we spend our days just putting out fires and feeling like we can only attend to what's right in front of us. And yet when we carve out the time to get strategic and do that planning, that's when we can see a real real change in our programs. And we can feel more in control of what we do instead of feeling. I know I used to feel some days like just everything was out of control. Yes, right, right. Even if you planned your day, just your day, something is going to come along to sort of throw your plan out of whack and then you're, you're totally focused on something else. And you're right, if you're more strategic about it, then that is a layer of control. It's certainly a layer of vision. You know where you want to go. And um, if you can bring others in your organization on board with that, then you're, then you're really going to move forward fast. One of my favorite posts, um, I wrote it, I think, two years ago, was about a court-appointed special advocates program, a CASA program, mm-hmm. uh, here in Virginia in the Richmond area. Um, where their program manager went through a strategic planning process with her team. And uh, it was really interesting to read about, well, to talk to her about it and then to write it up because she made it such a collaborative effort. She made it fun. You know, they started out on retreat, which is not so easy to do these days, but they were able to physically go away and do some planning. And then they were really committed to the implementation of the plan. So I think it was once a month they would sit down and they would review the plan, talk about where they were. They made it fun. They would bring in their favorite food and snacks and um, not make it a serious event, but something that they all enjoyed doing and they all had ownership about. Um, and they were able to advance a lot of a lot of their goals that way, including, you know, um, increasing volunteer retention, which was their their number one objective. Yeah. And and, you know, the other thing I want to say about that particular post is that particular program uh, manager, Janine Panzera, is now the executive director of her CASA program. And I bring that up because I know you and I have both talked about how volunteer managers can make great leaders of organizations. That's really inspiring, and and I'll get the um, you know the actual link to that particular post, and also include that in the show notes. Um, you know, and and the thing, what I think is that we volunteer managers are really really good at the fun part and the engaging part, and the, but sometimes we overlook the actual strategically planning and organizing part and, and what you're talking about Janine is is, is she had a, a plan in which they reviewed and so it became a formal process she made it fun but there was an underlying actual formal process in in the works yes yes you're right she she's she systematized it right she made mm. it part of their structure Um, So that it wasn't, uh, you know, something, a one-off kind of thing that they had to find a way to work into their schedules. It was a routine part of their work, and that made a big difference. 
And that's being proactive is creating those structures and systems that uh, you can put into place to. And, and I've always said that the more you repeat, and it sounds juvenile, but the more you repeat things in different ways, the more they're going to take hold. Yes, yes, exactly. And become part of the culture, right? right. Yeah, just like, but like, what do they say about forming a habit? It takes three months of regular, you know, of doing it on a regular basis or something. Yeah, something like that. And then once the habit, then it's, it's easy to keep going. Then you can build on that and create another new habit, too. So it, it's kind of a stepping stone. Um, now, Elisa, you're... I love the fact that your blog and your consulting, your website is called 20 Hats. When you were a volunteer manager in, in the trenches, so to say, what what was your favorite hat to wear? And maybe what was your least favorite hat to wear as a volunteer manager? Oh, my goodness. What a question. <laughs> You're throwing out the hard-hitting questions here. <laughs> Uh, it's a good one, though. Well, first of all, thank you for getting right away what 20 Hats um, is getting at as the name yeah. for my business, because as volunteer managers, 20 is a, is a guess. We probably wear way more than that, but we sure do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent most of my volunteer manager career, you know, working as a volunteer manager at a court-appointed special advocates program, a CASA program, and I was the person designated to recruit and train the volunteers. And so, wow, it's hard to say which hat I like the most. Um, Obviously training, because that's what I do now. Um, I really enjoyed training the volunteers. There are many other things, though, I enjoyed. um, I enjoyed the recruiting. Or, you know, I wish we could find a better word. I know you've blogged about that, that recruiting is not quite the right word. Um, You know, I would host information sessions twice a month. So I was always in front of people in the community talking about the program and, you know, what was wonderful about it and why why someone might want to become a CASA volunteer. So I enjoyed that uh, quite a bit. And then I enjoyed the strategy. In my CASA program, I was the associate director. So I worked very closely with our executive director. And so in addition to recruiting and training, I was, we were a small program, but so I'll put this in quotes. I was upper management. So we were also often talking about strategic issues and how to build capacity in the program, how to work with the board, what's the best way to structure the staff, things like that. And I've always found those issues very, very interesting, which is probably why I'm excited to do some strategic planning because it brings all of that into play. That's where some of your passion lies in that strategic planning and in training. So uh, you're able to put both of those together. Do you have a least favorite or if not, you know, there's probably a lot of minutiae things that you, you didn't enjoy. But if you have a least favorite, what might that be? Right. Well, that's probably it. The minutiae. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love the big picture stuff. I've always been terrible at details. So that administrative piece of being a volunteer manager that we all know yeah. in putting data into a database, tracking it, 
making sure records are up to date. That was always, you know, probably my least favorite part. Which makes me think that, or let me ask you this question. You spend a lot of time, and I think most volunteer managers do as well, spend a lot of time pitching to potential prospective volunteers. Why don't we use traditionally, why don't we we use those same skills in order to pitch ourselves as leaders uh, to upper management, the community. Why, why do you think that's not something we do often? Are you saying why why don't we communicate more often to upper management that we may want to move up into yes. a different kind of position? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to generalize here. So anyone who's listening, just please know I'm generalizing. I think some of us don't picture ourselves in those roles. Mm-hmm. Um You know, as you know, many people fall into volunteer management kind of accidentally. They they weren't intending this kind of a role. Perhaps they wanted to work in nonprofits and this was the position that was open or they've done some volunteering and they thought it would be, you know, a fun thing to do. And they may not have thought that the skills they're learning as a volunteer manager position themselves to do something um to do something bigger. So that's one thing. Again, I'm generalizing. Um, I think all of this is generalizing. But, you know, one of the first trainings that I offered when I started my business was on achieving buy-in for volunteer managers. And I would start it off by reviewing uh, what are called the seven kinds of power in the workplace. There's um, a blog post that an HR manager put out That reviews seven kinds of power in the workplace. And so I would go over these seven kinds of power with the participants in my trainings. And they were things like one was legitimate power, which is what we generally think of as power. That's the person with the authority to say yes or no to something. But there are other kinds of power like information power, uh, which is your expertise, which definitely all volunteer managers have. And I don't remember all seven off the top of my head, but there is also um, there's reward power and coercive power, you know, your ability to reward people or to sanction them. You know, these are all kinds of power we possess. And sometimes it's a real eye opener for volunteer managers to realize that actually they have a lot more power than they think. Yeah. And once you realize you have power. Um, then I think you have more confidence and you're more willing to take risks and hopefully to speak up to your leadership about, about you know, what you would like to see for your program, for yourself, for your future professional development, all of that. Yeah, knowing that you do have some power and not listening to those, whether they're external or internal voices that say, no, you're just a volunteer manager. (laughs) Yes, yes. You know, listen. (laughs) Exactly. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. (laughs) You're not just a volunteer manager. Yeah, yeah, well, it was, it was funny. That reminds me. I just uh, launched a training for, for my museum volunteer managers on developing virtual volunteer roles. Mm-hmm. And so I, I beta tested it with some of the volunteer managers I know here in Northern Virginia. And one of them invited, she manages a team of volunteer managers, and she also invited a volunteer who's working with her 
um, to come along on the training, which was great. So, you know, of course, this happened remotely over Zoom. And at one point, the volunteer said, well, what do I know? I'm just a volunteer. (laughs) And (laughs) so she couldn't have said it to a more supportive group because we were like, you're not just a volunteer. Uh, yeah, there's probably no group who values you more than the people in this room. I don't mean to yell at you, but I'm going to yeah. yell at you. <laughs> right, exactly. That's great. Well, speaking of virtual, um, what do you see as um, from what you've seen and also what you, you might be, uh, you know, feeling? What do you think the, the role of virtual volunteering is, is uh, now and, and going to be in the future? That's a good question. I I don't think it's going to go away. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, just before we got on this call, I started to write my next blog post, which was is about uh, takeaways from this virtual volunteer roles training mm-hmm. that I've rolled out. And um, I think I well, number one, I don't think virtual volunteer roles are going to replace physical roles or on-site roles. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be a need for on-site volunteers. I, on the other hand, I do think that we're going to start offering more virtual options. So in other words, virtual roles are not just a stand-in for now while we're in a pandemic and lots of people either can't volunteer because their programs are closed or restricted or don't want to volunteer because they're waiting for a vaccine and so forth. It's not a temporary fix. I think they're probably here to stay because there are lots of advantages and opportunities to offering virtual volunteer roles. Um, One of the volunteer managers I know here in Northern Virginia, she works at a homeless shelter and uh, she did did sort of adapt some of her on-site roles to uh, create some virtual ones. And she, um, and ended up engaging a volunteer from California, and yeah. she's here in Northern Virginia. So even for very, very community-based nonprofit organizations, virtual or remote roles create an opportunity to bring in volunteers for, that, that are not just limited to your geographic area. Uh, you know, these are people who really care about your cause no matter where you are located and want to be, you know, part of the group that helps to deliver on your mission. So that's pretty exciting. And then I think when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm-hmm. um, certainly being able to offer roles remo- remotely um, and making them perhaps shorter roles in duration, it could be one way to expand diversity in your organizations. That w- That's the direction of the, the course that I, that I created, was to create shorter shorter, more time-limited volunteer roles that could help to expand diversity because, you know, what I've come to realize is that some of our volunteer roles, not all of them, but some of them, the ones that are lengthier, uh, require a a longer time commitment, require, you know, um, lots of complex and advanced skills, um, those can be barriers to creating diversity in your organizations um, because really in some ways they are tailored to um, a volunteer base that's mostly affluent, older, um, well-educated, um, which means probably, you know, mostly a white audience of volunteers. So mm-hmm. by creating shorter roles, that's one way to deconstruct that 
and open up your organization so that you can bring in a wider cross-section of the community. And I found that uh, by creating some virtual, and you have to think uh, kind of outside of the box in order to create some of these uh, virtual volunteering roles. But that's good for us to think creatively. How can we uh, supplement, enhance, uh, further, you know, go bigger uh, with uh, serving the people that that we're involved with by creating these uh, virtual volunteer opportunities. And I found that I was really attracting folks who wanted to get involved. But uh, like you say, you know, maybe they could not get to a site. They had no transportation. Mm -hmm. They uh, maybe had a disability and they couldn't get to a site, Mm -hmm. you know. Maybe they had uh, some sort of, uh, uh, not social, you know, but maybe they just didn't want to be around a lot of people, uh, you know, but they still wanted to volunteer. And so virtual volunteering was perfect. And some of the things that that we created uh, were extremely meaningful and and helped a lot of folks. So, yeah, I I think this is the time for us to really go into creative mode with virtual volunteering. And and like you say, attract people that otherwise would not be your traditional, we're coming to training or we're going to be there every Friday, volunteer. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. And you're right. It can get very creative. For example, um, I know at the museums that they're trying to figure out how to make information desks, you know, how how to allow those volunteers to assist visitors remotely. So you don't have someone physically sitting behind a vis- an information desk, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and they're coming up with some pretty creative things. You know, they... They have phone numbers that visitors can call um, or, or iPads that visitors can, you know, touch and log in and um, and get connected with a visitor. I mean, they're, they're, they're still figuring it all out. But, um, you know, imagine if you walk into a museum and by the information desk, there's a um, there's a, a, all of a sudden I'm going to say iPad, even though it's a branded word, an iPad mm-hmm. on a tripod, and that's your information desk, and you you know you touch it, and then you you see a volunteer right there, you know you see them on screen. They're not there with you physically, but they can still help you navigate around the museum, which I think is pretty creative. That um, is great. Yeah. Yeah, right. Or, um, you know, another example that came out of this class in the museum world was that oftentimes in museums you have volunteers who man these cart stations, you know, sort of like kiosks in the mall. They're educational. They tend to have a lot of objects on them. And back in the before times, you could pick up the objects and touch them and smell them or whatever and interact with them. Obviously, that's going away for the foreseeable future. So um, one of the volunteer managers in my class was trying to figure out how to do carts remotely. Mm-hmm. So and there and that takes some creativity. For example, would you ask the volunteer to have similar objects in their house, similar physical objects that they can pick up and handle and demonstrate on camera to people so that. Uh, obviously, the visitor can't touch the object, but the volunteer is still physically holding that object and and um, manipulating it and and explaining about it. 
Or do you um, instead have like an image of the object online and, and connect that way? Um, do you send the volunteer a kit of things to their home that they work with? There's yeah. all kinds of things you that uh, questions that need to be worked out, and they're not necessarily problems. They are opportunities to get creative. And we're, I don't know if the word is fortunate um, in this regard, but this, this pandemic is occurring during a time when there's an, a lot of uh, technological advances yes. that can help us create these roles. Like you said, I mean, I'm, I'm getting the visual from what you're describing, and it's phenomenal in what, what they're uh, proposing and trying to do. Yes. Yeah. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. And I, I have to think, I mean, it's got to happen that the technologies are going to continue to get better and better um, so that we can, um, you know, meet these kinds of needs in a virtual kind of space. I don't know what that looks like exactly yet, but, you know, it's out there. Right. And you, t- you take the, the example you gave about, you know, the front desk volunteer, the reception volunteer, and you pair it with go back to the diversity and inclusion. And now more people will be able to become a volunteer because of all those things we discussed, uh, keeping them from going to a site. And so it, it, it's going to open that up more to I would love to go uh, to a museum and see, you know, different folks. Uh, being able to guide me on my my journey. Yeah, that's quite possible. Yes, mm-hmm. that it will evolve in that direction. I agree. Now, you have been conducting a leadership circle for volunteer managers in your area for quite some time. Yes. Well, my leadership circles, I'm actually not running one right now, which, which makes me sad um, because they are one of the they might be the favorite thing I do um, in my business right now is I've conducted two leadership circles so far. One ran for many years here in Northern Virginia with volunteer managers here in my area. And then uh, for eight months, I ran a leadership circle for a consortium of museums here in the D.C. area. And mm-hmm. so uh, I did blog about this recently. So they were sort of very different. The cohorts were very different, and yet there were some definite similarities to what I saw in both groups, especially when it comes to growing professionally. Um, Having a leadership circle, having time dedicated to your professional growth on a regular basis and not now and then by attending a conference or checking out a webinar here and there, but knowing that once a month or once every other month for at least a year or nine months, but for, you know, a a fairly long period of time, Mm -hmm. you're going to carve out time to talk about leadership issues in the company of your colleagues is really powerful. I've, you know, the growth that I saw in the volunteer managers who participated was so impressive. And I can't say the cause was the leadership circle. I would say, I helped facilitate something they were already motivated to do, mm. um, but I did see a lot of growth. Yeah. In in your leadership circles, uh, was there anything, did you, did you see like a pattern emerge or did you, was there anything that surprised you or was there something that, you know, was um, what you expected? Oh, all good questions. Well, you know, one thing is everyone's goals were a little different based on, you know, what was 
personally important for them. Um, so in my, my, my Northern Virginia leadership circle, for example, I had one member who she was pretty burned out when she entered the circle. She was even, you know, starting to wonder if it was time to, you know, time to move on, um, because she was having so much trouble with, you know, managing work-life balance. Um, so she used her time in the circle to sort of set goals around that. And, um, you know, I would say it took, but eventually she did feel like she had a much stronger balance in her life and she was much happier about her job. And so I would say she used the circle for support for that. Um, she was very committed to that particular goal with or without a circle. And then having her peers there and having a chance to set goals and be accountable to those goals helped her move forward. So that's one example. You know, another member, um, who um, was in her, I, who was younger, was trying to figure out her next professional step, um, and she decided to go back to graduate school. So that was pretty impressive. Um, so it was great to see shifts like that. In the larger group, um, obviously there was less of an opportunity for one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but what they really appreciated was. Um, having dedicated time that was structured and facilitated where they could be talking with their their colleagues in their very same field who are volunteer managers and sharing notes and so forth. And in museums, there are some common themes that um, that are maybe maybe more common in museums than in other kinds of volunteer roles. For example, oftentimes volunteers at museums stay there for a long time. You know, you have volunteers who are in their 80s or maybe even older who have been there for decades. And so managing older volunteers was a big issue, mm -hmm. um, you know, especially when they start to decline mentally or physically. How do you support them? How do you keep them engaged uh, while they are able to volunteer? And how do you help them move on? Because obviously um, that's a very emotional issue and it's one that needs to be handled with a lot of compassion and, and tact when, you know, it's time when, when they really can't volunteer anymore. So yeah. we talked about issues like that, too. Yeah, yeah, that is that is a really tough one. And I think the pandemic is going to maybe exacerbate or or amplify some of that as as volunteers return in some way, shape or form. Yeah, right. And we just don't know yet, do we? Yeah, no. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the other thing I would say about the leadership circles is that, um, and, and this is my personal observation, is, you know, we, it's sort of easier to tackle the, this, the hard skill piece or the sort of the theoretical skill piece, like, um, you know, how do you manage those aging volunteers? How do you manage change? Which I know you just blogged about. That was a really great post. Um, yes. Things of that nature. Um, but one time I, I asked those, the volunteer managers to talk about moving out of their comfort zones, and, which was a very different kind of conversation, um, you know, which really has nothing to do with volunteer management. It's really about, you know, if you want to grow, you have to do things that are uncomfortable. And, um, you know, when you have a job and you you get a regular paycheck, you don't necessarily have to move out of your comfort zone very much unless your supervisor is expecting you to. Yeah. So, uh, you know, how do you make that choice to do something that uh, might move you forward 
and and feel really awful when nobody's expecting you to do that. Um, yeah, and, and and to me, the thing about comfort zones is they they tend to make you kind of uh, com, uh, complacent. Yes, they can, can't they? Right. Yeah, and, right. and when you. When you move, when you when you challenge yourself to do something you're not particularly comfortable with, you get that that anxiety and those butterflies in your stomach. But then you you know what you get as you do it, you get that rush of satisfaction that oh you know look I'm I'm not I, I'm okay and yeah and, that, and it can propel you to do more and better yes yes it can right yes when you get through to the other side it feels so good right exactly you can can feel really proud of yourself yeah Yeah. and so for volunteer managers I think it's probably no surprise but in my experience the area that leads to the most discomfort is having a difficult conversation with a volunteer Um, (sighs) whatever that looks like That's gotta be so, that's that's the day when you wake up and you go, you know, do I do I am I feeling sick? Can I just stay home? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, and actually, Meridian, you know, you asked what was my least favorite thing in my work. I would I want to revise that. My least favorite thing was turning away applicants that we did not accept into our program. That was just the worst. And it did. It gave me all those things. It gave me a knot in my stomach. My heart would race. I would put it off as long as I could. Um, However, the way our program was structured, there was only one person who had the wonderful job of rejecting volunteer applicants. And that was me. That was you. Yeah, no one else had to do that. I got to do that. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Oh, yeah, me too. And finally, I just like, okay. All right, you know, <laughs> right. I, I got some, I got some rejections under my belt. I think you know maybe I'm the best person. I'm, I'm the most qualified, experienced person, and maybe I should be doing this. <laughs> right, right. Yes, yes. And I appreciate that because you often say that the volunteer managers are the most qualified to do these difficult things. So exactly. That, Who's that, gonna? Well, yeah, who's going to let down a volunteer uh, more gently and with the thought that, you know, we're not rejecting you as a human being. We're right. just saying this is not maybe a good fit at this time. Uh, it's the volunteer manager. Nobody else is going to do it as well as uh, we do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And over time, and over time, it does get easier, doesn't it? Uh, it really does. You know, you learn, you learn that it's not. You know, that you're not being mean. That really, it really is a question of fit. When you're turning someone away, it's really because they're not a good fit for the role. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no matter how they respond. Yeah, and actually, you know what the meanest thing you can do? The meanest thing is to let somebody come in and fail. Yes. Right. Then you're setting them up, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're just like, okay, well, I won't deal with this now, and so I'll just let them come in here and create a disaster, a disaster <laughs> created for them, and they'll feel really a hundred times worse, and oh, yeah, that's so much better. Yes. Because <laughs> I've, I've done that, too. 
<laughs> haven't we all? Haven't we all? That's how we learn, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially when it gets thrown back at you about a hundred times. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. When you're advising and training volunteer managers for their programs and that, I'm, I'm guessing because you're good at, at, at saying, you know, you need to have work-life balance. So I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask you about flamenco dancing. Which, oh, my. Okay. Yeah. So tell us about that and how that is a balance for you. Oh, okay. That's a, that's a good question. Well, you know, if you go way back in my life, so we're talking many decades, um, I... I've always I've always been a dancer, always. In fact, I started out in college as a dance major, um, and then and I went to college in New York, uh, where I was surrounded by lots of aspiring dancers. And I realized really quickly that I wasn't going to make it as a dancer, so I changed my major to English, which I never regretted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always danced in one form or another, and um, had never studied flamenco dancing, but I thought it was beautiful. And then about 10 years ago, you know, at our local community center, someone was offering a flamenco dancing class. And a friend who also likes to dance said, hey, do you want to try it? So we went, and it was so much fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's really a lot of fun for, you know, someone who loves to, you know, the music is fun, the rhythms are fun, it's challenging, you know, the footwork is hard, castanets Mm -hmm. are really hard, Um, but... uh, I just enjoy it so much. So I've been doing it ever since. And even now with the pandemic, uh, classes continue remotely. So I, so yeah, so, you know, uh, on Mondays I take a sort of an arm work and a footwork class. And on Thursdays I take a castanets class. And uh, I have to say the castanets are getting pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) You you don't have any uh, sitting near you, do you? No, I (sighs) Don't, I don't, but who knows? Maybe on Facebook I'll, I'll do a little thing. That would be great. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I can, you know, having known you, I, I can see that, you know, obviously that you, you are a dancer in your movements. But you know what? Now you dance with words and training. So... I, I think for volunteer managers, uh, volunteer managers are extremely creative and extremely able to patch together something beautiful out of so many experiences and facets of their life. And I see you dancing with words and dancing with training and inspiration. So it's kind of a dance for you. Yeah, oh, thank you. I, you know, I would agree. These are all different ways to express well, for me to express myself creatively, and, and I agree for volunteer managers that there is a lot of creativity in the role. It may seem like you're a foot soldier, like you're just there to implement and, you know, get things executed and done. Um, that's not necessarily true. If, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities for creative expression, you know, in the roles you create, um, you know, in the ways you serve your mission and the ways you recognize your volunteers, 
Um, I've seen some questions in the CVA forum lately about, you know, how do you recognize volunteers remotely? And people are coming up with, you know, really creative ideas for doing that. Yeah. And sharing them, which is so great about our profession as we're all willing to share. Yes. Yes. I know. I love that. I love how much sharing goes on. Yeah. At least if you could describe leadership in a, a sentence, a phrase, a, you know, whatever, um, how would you describe leadership? Ooh, wow. Mm-hmm. What a question. Leadership. I think leadership is, is, is leadership. Okay. Well, it's more than a word or a sentence. I think it's that moment when you step out of the implementer role mm-hmm. into something into something that you you see needs to happen. So it has a lot to do with vision. When you have an idea of something that needs to happen or do better or get done a certain way, that's when you, that's the moment you become a leader. Yeah. You know, as long as you're willing to follow instructions, you're not – and that's all you do, perhaps that's your comfort zone, um, that's not leadership. It's when yeah. you step outside of that. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, you're you're so right. And I think every volunteer manager, if you stick with it for you know at least a year, whatever, for a little while, if you stick with it, you begin to develop a vision. You see the possible the possibilities open up. And so, what do you think is the what would be the first step for someone who's listening and says, you know what, I have a vision for my program. I just don't know where to begin. What do you think would be a first step, even if it's the tiniest of things, uh, so that someone could get on their way to their vision? Mm, good question. Um, I would say... Hold on to the confidence that you can make it happen. I think a lot of us get discouraged on the way because it can take a lot longer to realize our ideas than we would like. Sometimes it can take several years. Um, but I can think of lots of stories where volunteer managers were able to realize what they what they wanted to see happen um, because they stuck with it. So yeah. I think having that belief um, that what you want to do is valid and important and valuable is the first step. And then probably the second step is to get strategic about how you might get the buy-in to move forward. So yeah. lots of things come back to buy-in yeah. in the end. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Great advice. And how do you handle, you personally, Alisa, how do you handle disappointment and discouragement because I know most all of us uh, face discouragement and disappointment you know in our lives oh my wow well when I was a volunteer manager I kept some beanie babies in the drawer of my desk and I would pull them out and throw them at the wall when I got really discouraged (laughs) (laughs) and people would come running in like what's the matter (laughs) and I would say I'm just blowing off some steam so um uh, when you get discouraged, I think you really have to, well, you know, number one, you have to give yourself some time to settle down and let all those feelings process. And then you need to frame what's going on because, you know, obviously what we tell ourselves has a lot to do with, you know, the next steps we, ca- we take. So if you get discouraged and you're telling yourself 
that you failed or this is the end of the road, then that is the end of the road. If you're able to reframe and put what's happening in a larger context, then um, then I think you can get, you know, then then you can generate some more energy to keep going. Yeah, I love that. That that's excellent advice. And thank goodness it was Beanie Babies and maybe <laughs> not maybe not your uh, uh, monitor that you would throw because <laughs> there's no budget for monitor. Right, there's no budget for that. <laughs> well, that's so heavy, and there's a lot of cleanup. You know, Beanie Babies is. And even, unless, it, unless it breaks open and you have to vacuum up the beanies, uh, you're good. <laughs> yeah, put them back in the drawer. I'll, I'll be seeing you guys next yep. week. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. this, this has been great. Is, is there anything else we haven't touched on that you would like the listeners to know about or something you'd like to discuss Mm, boy, I think we've covered, we've really covered a lot. Um, and I appreciate it. Yeah, I think, you know, because I, you know, because so many of the people I work with are younger and in earlier stages of their professional development that, you know, I really, what I like to tell them is that, you know, whatever you decide about your next professional next step, whether you choose to commit to volunteer engagement for the rest of your professional career or if you shift into something else it's all good um it's all good it's it, you're not you're not um being disloyal to the profession by moving on you're going to take those skills and draw on them and use them in another way and it's all for the larger goal of transforming our communities right yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, until you started talking about that, honestly, I never thought about it in that way. And I, I think you really have hit the nail on the head there. Go ahead and, and aspire to run a nonprofit or work in the corporate world, but definitely bring along with you what you've learned and advocate for us so you're not really just closing the door on volunteer management you're actually yes. helping from maybe a different platform exactly exactly right because you know a lot of you know to give our profession more recognition uh, you do that does need to come from the top down so so let's let's work at getting there or at least influencing the top down Absolutely. I love that. So thanks yeah. for changing my mind on that one. You are oh. awesome. <laughs> Thank you. You are awesome too, Meridian. I oh, appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, we're all awesome. We're all awesome, yes. <laughs> so I uh, thank you so much, Elisa, for, for being on on the podcast and sharing uh, so much of your 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 time and your wisdoms and your insights and all your experiences. Uh, we we truly appreciate that, and I know that folks listening will be able to to glean a lot of good tips and that from what you've had to share with us today. So thank you. Oh well, you're welcome, Meridian, and thank you for having me on. I think your podcast is a great addition to all the great resources that we have out there when it comes to managing volunteers. So keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the Volunteer Plane Talk podcast. Big thank you to Alternate Timelines for the use of their music. 
for more volunteer management talk, or if you just want to reach out to me, please visit my website, volunteerclaimtalk.com, or you can catch me at Meridian Swift on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Until next time, this is Meridian Swift. Thank you and bye-bye.